Hello, my lovely people. Welcome to Staff Room Stories. I'm your host, Emily Aslan, and I'm here to bring you the topics that Australian teachers are talking about behind their closed staff room doors. Join me each episode, usually with an incredible guest, to explore the things we're talking about, as well as the things that we ought to know. Enjoy. Hello again. This is part two of a two-part series taking a reflective look back on the year that was as reported on by the media. If you haven't listened to part one, please go back and do so now so you award yourself the full scope of the year. This part will cover July to December. Almost at the end of December at the time of recording, In full self-awareness, I will let you know that my research process for this episode has been pretty simple. I simply searched on Google for articles within each month. That means what I'm covering is likely to be the most clicked on articles. And with that, of course, comes the risk that it will be slanted and or biased by design. I've tried to limit each month as, of course, there are loads of news articles out there, but I also didn't want to miss anything important. I will also give you a content warning before we jump in. Today, we're going to be talking COVID, assault, and mental health in this episode, among a few other things. So please look after yourself and bypass any sections that you feel necessary. I will always lead with the article headline, so that will give you an indication of the next portion of content. And feel free to just skip ahead 30 seconds or a minute or two minutes if you need to. So. Let's not waste any more time, as it's another really full episode today. Let's wind back all the way to July of 2022. Let's start July with this article from The Conversation, published on the 5th. We are on the brink of losing Indigenous languages in Australia. Could schools save them? The article mentions how Indigenous languages are disappearing at a very rapid rate. And yet students here in Australia are actually very willing to learn native languages ahead of other foreign languages. But there was some good news in the article. The demand for Indigenous language teachers has been a long-standing issue. In recent years, more funding has been allocated. The new federal government has pledged $14 million over the next three years to bring First Nations teachers around to around 60 schools. In remote Aboriginal schools like One Arm Point, funding could be used to bring elders and resources into the school to keep the language going. But of course, lack of suitable teachers isn't just an issue for learning Indigenous languages. The Age reported on July 6. Teacher shortage risks stunting students in maths and science, researchers warn. We all know out-of-field teachers, even up into senior high school, who are teaching specialist areas like maths and science. This isn't a new issue. It's been happening for as long as I've been a teacher, that's for sure. But with the overall decrease of teachers, we are, of course, losing access to those with this specialist training. The flow-on effects from this are enormous, potentially irreversible, as fewer students enter these fields in senior school and therefore are not entering into those workforces. It's a problem that's going to take years to fix as we need to start again from the bottom up. We need to get these specialist teachers in who can provide the appropriate education in these subjects from an early age, which then increases the likelihoods of the students following that pathway. 
I wonder if you'll all remember this next story. It certainly was a discussion point in the Facebook groups, and I even reached out to the author, Nicole Mockler, to see if she was interested in coming onto the podcast. I never heard back, but that's okay. We'll talk about it now. So the conversation reported on July 11. No wonder no one wants to be a teacher. World First Study looks at 65,000 news articles about Australian teachers. That's a whole lot of news articles. To give some perspective, if you've listened to part one, as well as up to now in part two, I've covered 105 news articles just to this point right now. And that's me being selective and, of course, only from this year. Let me read you some of the article now. Remember when former Morrison government minister Stuart Robert lashed out at dud teachers? In March, the then acting education minister said the bottom 10% of teachers can't read and write and blamed them for declining academic results. This is more than just a sensational headline or a politician trying to get attention. My research argues the way teachers are talked about in the media has a flow-on effect to how people feel about becoming a teacher and how current teachers see their place in the community. So when we talk about the shortage of teachers in Australia, we also need to look at media coverage of teachers in Australia. My new book examines how teachers have been represented in the print media for the past 25 years. When you look at the harsh criticism and blame placed on teachers, it's no wonder we are not attracting enough new people to the profession and struggling to retain the ones we have. In a World First study, I explored how school teachers have been portrayed in Australia print media from 1996 to 2020. I looked at more than 65,000 media articles from all 12 national and capital city daily newspapers, including all articles that mention teacher and or teachers three times or more. With an average of 50 articles per week for 25 years, the total word count of more than 43 million, my analysis is one of the largest of its kind. So her three key findings from this incredible work were, one, we are fixated on the term teacher quality. Two, teacher's work is made out to be simple. Obviously it's not. And three, teacher bashing is the norm. Nicole ends the article with this. As we consider what to do to improve teacher numbers in Australia, we need to think about the way we talk about teaching and teachers in the media. If all people hear is that teachers are to blame for poor standards and they should be finding their demanding complex jobs easy, this is hardly likely to encourage people into the profession, nor does it give those already there the support and respect they need to stay. If you want to read this book and delve into this more deeply, it's called Constructing Teacher Identities, How the Print Media Define and Represent Teachers and Their Work. On July 12, we circle back to an issue that's reared its ugly head more than a few times in the first half of the year. ABC News reported, More private schools denounce homosexuality, diverse gender identity in enrolment contracts. The article reads, Eleven private schools across Australia have been accused by human rights lawyers of exposing students to potential discrimination after enrolment forms demanded prospective families support beliefs denouncing homosexuality and diverse gender identity. 
All 11 schools are part of the Christian Community Ministries, CCM, which says it serves more than 6,000 students across schools in Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia, and Western Australia. And so this saga continues. The article discusses a bit about religious freedom and the right for schools to govern according to their religious ethos. Terry Burke, Secretary for the Independent Education Union Queensland and Northern Territory Branch, said schools needed to make a distinction between their religious beliefs and their practices and policies. Nothing is preventing a school authority teaching its faith. Nothing prevents that, he said. What's at stake here is an issue about the discrimination enacted upon an individual because of who they are. You can teach your faith, but that does not inherently mean that you have to discriminate. However, former City Point student Felicity Myers said she was surprised to learn other schools had similar contracts, but since publicly opposing City Point's enrolment contract earlier in the year, she had heard from other young queer people who faced discrimination at school. I was already aware that it was an issue that went beyond the school that I attended, she said. I have had a range of stories and experiences from people across a variety of different schools, religious and non-religious, especially if the teachers do go towards the line of teaching that they are unworthy, that they're not valued, that they're not loved for who they are, and that they have to change who they are. I think teachings like this can really damage the self-esteem and self-worth of a young queer person. Some people might come back to this whole discussion saying that people should not be enrolling in schools with these beliefs if they know that they stand against them. For example, if you are gay, why would you put yourself through the trauma of learning or working at a school that is anti-gay? But one of the issues here is that many children and young people are unsure of their sexuality and or gender identity. Or they may be sure, but may not have told anyone about it yet. Schools have a wonderfully unique opportunity to provide a safe place for our young people while they are growing and developing their identity. But to be placed in a school that is teaching that this sort of thing is fundamentally wrong, that could be permanently damaging to a young person who is discovering themselves. Oh, what a big conversation. Let's park that for now and move on. On July 15, we jumped to another contentious issue, this time in the conversation. Headlined, don't expect schools to do all the heavy lifting to close the education divide between the big cities and the rest of Australia. The article discussed how the impact of everything outside of school affects the life inside of school, particularly in remote and rural locations. It calls for the next national reform agreement to respond to the diversity of school locations and communities, especially in regional, rural and remote areas. It should include a strong focus on building the capacity of these communities to help improve learning. The next week saw a slew of articles about how students should be wearing masks to school, even though there were no mask mandates anywhere in Australia to this effect at the time. There were calls for parents to send all students over the age of eight to school wearing a mask as cases surged yet again. Official recommendations and emails were sent out, which Nine News noted in their headline, Parents confused over mask-wearing recommendation for school students across Victoria. A lot of conversations swirled around this, ranging from what's the point 
to why don't we just lock down again? I think our collective fatigue at the pandemic was very real and very high at this point. July 20 saw this headline in The Educator Online. The influence of edtech in Australia's schools before and after the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm sure you all have your own vivid, possibly unpleasant memories of shifting to online learning and all the teething pains that came with it. One thing that is absolutely certain is that our relationship with digital technology has been permanently shifted because of the pandemic. Some schools have kept a lot of their pandemic era technology things in place. Others have reverted back as quickly as they can. This little snippet from the article sums it up quite nicely. Michelle Dennis, head of digital at Haleybury, said that while technology has always found a way into schools, usually at a slower pace compared to most other industries, that changed abruptly with the arrival of COVID-19. The pandemic accelerated the impact and momentum, Dennis told the educator. Teachers are increasingly having to adopt technological tools to support their teaching methods, and we're seeing an increase in technology organisations not only willing to work with education, but to put education first. But while technology has an important place in classrooms, quality teaching is pivotal in underpinning education, she noted. There are some things that only a teacher can do exceptionally well, like relating to a student and initiating questions that can open up a new line of thinking. Technology that is thoughtful and evidence-based can help teachers do their jobs and provide insight, she said. In the world of education, technology has to be used at the right place and the right time, and when it makes the most sense. It's not about using technology for technology's sake. It's about using technology in a genuine way to make learning better. On July 22, the conversation ran an article by a group of academics with a focus on teacher education and leaders of the Network of Academic Directors of Professional Experience. It was headlined. Growing numbers of unqualified teachers are being sent into classrooms. This is not the way to fix the teacher shortage. This article was, of course, discussing the contentious permission to teach schemes present right across Australia. In the article, they outlined the issues, most notably how we are risking the premature exit of beginner teachers from the profession due to early burnout. They're concerned about how pre-service teachers have had their own education so disrupted through the pandemic and are therefore entering the workforce less prepared than those pre-pandemic. I compare this to the UK who have a scheme in place where any professional can step into the classroom. My husband actually worked as a school relief teacher while we lived there for a year and he had absolutely no teacher training whatsoever. At least our pre-service teachers here have something under their belt before they step into the classroom. Do I think it's a good fix? No. But these are desperate times for sure and until we raise the profile of the profession and get more fully trained teachers in the door, I'm not sure what other options we actually have. Here's a bit of a clickbait article title for you, but touching on a very, very sensitive topic that we covered in the first half of the year. It was by WA Today on July 22. Shock twist as Perth judge delays sentencing of teacher murder plotter over Banksia Hill concerns. You may remember me touching on this story in part one where a student stabbed a teacher in the chest with full intent to murder her. It was premeditated. 
Basically, this article outlined how the sentencing was to be delayed as the Banksia Hill Youth Detention Facility was in a state of crisis. The judge was aware of the likely outcome of the proceedings and was concerned for the well-being and rehabilitation of the student should she be sent there. We will come back to this story in the September part of the episode when the hearing continued. Another story we touched on in part one involved a Sydney high school teacher caught on camera inhaling from a homemade bong while sitting with some students at a skate park. On July 25, news.com.au reported, New blow for bong-smoking Sydney high school teacher. A Sydney high school teacher who was filmed smoking a bong with her students has been dealt a fresh blow in court. The article continued. A Sydney high school teacher who admitted selling drugs to her students will not have a conviction recorded. Lauren Russell pleaded guilty in April this year to supplying illegal drugs to students at Lucas Heights Community School. She walked free from Sutherland Court on Monday on the condition she abstained from illicit drug use and continued to receive treatment for mental illness for at least two years. The sentence took into account that Ms. Russell was most likely experiencing a hypomanic episode caused by her bipolar disorder at the time. There is a causal link between the defendant's mental health condition and the offending, Magistrate Philip Stewart said. He said due to her mental health condition, Ms. Russell's moral culpability for the crime was somewhat, but not entirely, diminished. If we look back at the title of this article, I'm not entirely sure what blow this woman has been dealt. Unless this was the author's poor attempt at a joke or a bit of a clickbait, but I actually saw this as a compassionate outcome for someone who broke the law whilst in the midst of a mental health crisis. Of course, what she did was wrong. There is no denying that. But the outcome of the trial is one of support for her to not re-offend, which is the best possible outcome here. Speaking of mental health, the Educator Online touched on this subject in relation to teacher and student wellbeing programs on July 27. Headlined, The Problem with Australia's School Wellbeing Programs and how to fix them. We seem to get a lot of articles in the news that are telling us how to fix things, don't we? Basically, it all boiled down to the fact that most wellbeing programs are about assessing rather than addressing. Teacher wellbeing is almost always disconnected from student wellbeing, even though, as Dr. Jody Carrington says, if the adults are not okay, the kids don't stand a chance. The article does go into a bit of a thinly veiled sales pitch for the interviewee's own products, but there are some pieces of gold in there. Looking ahead, Weber said he hopes to see governments recognise student and teacher well-being as interconnected rather than separate issues. We also need to carefully consider the mode of delivery of content. Too frequently, well-being resources are uploaded to the internet with little focus on engagement and overall impact, he said. A lot of well-being resources have used technology since the early 2000s. We need to ensure that we use automation, customization, and personalization to build the best well-being resources. Dr. Hawkes said he would like to see government less in the thrall of theoreticians and the tertiary sector and much better aligned with schools and teachers. We need less credentialing by bureaucrats and more by teachers. We need well-being programs written by teachers for teachers. This is not to advocate for reduced standards, 
It's to advocate for increased relevance, he said. Furthermore, we need well-being interventions that reduce the burden on teachers rather than increase them. Dr. Hawkes said there also needs to be holistic, school-wide programs that cover students, teachers, and support staff. Of particular importance is the need for proactive measures as well as redemptive initiatives in the school wellbeing space. I'd be curious to hear what wellbeing looks like at your school. This has come up in the Facebook groups a few times and people are really looking for ideas and strategies. So please do get in touch through social media or the website if you think your school has a good or a bad wellbeing program. I'd love to hear about it. And so we move into August. August wasn't too heavy in terms of news content. There weren't necessarily less articles, but a lot of them were of the same topic. So I'm just condensing them a bit here. August started off with this headline in the conversation. Decolonizing classrooms could help keep First Nations kids in school and away from police. I really think this is a conversation that a lot of educators don't want to have right now. My own episode about decolonization is actually the least downloaded episode of all, which hints to me that teachers don't want to talk about it, at least yet. But this article raises a lot of critical points. Here are some snippets. On average, 50% of young people in detention in Australia are First Nations, despite only representing about 6% of the overall youth population of the country. For a lot of children, their first experiences of trouble and marginalisation in response to authority can manifest in the classroom. We also know the longer children engage with their formal schooling, the less likely they are to come into contact with the judicial system as children and adults. One way to address First Nations youth incarceration lies with schools and teachers acquiring the skills and confidence to begin the process of decolonizing their classrooms. This requires teachers and schools to change their approaches to include First Nations contexts across all aspects of teaching and learning. As you probably know by now, our new Australian curriculum is attempting to do this, but I think we need a lot more training at the teacher level. We need more support to engage with local elders and to access appropriate resources to make sure this doesn't just get swept under the rug. Of course, we can highlight history lessons in this context, as they are very colonizer-centric. But the article also outlines how simple things like First Nations books and artworks are a great place to start to help students feel seen. The next article, published on August 8 by The Conversation, was headlined, Australia spends $5 billion a year on teaching assistance in schools, but we don't know what they do. And as inflammatory as that is, I can kind of see their point. Every school I've worked at has used teaching assistance in a different way. This article mentions how many teachers don't use assistance or aids effectively and that there seems to be no national guideline for the work they do. Some are working with the lowest achieving students, some with students with additional needs, some are doing administrative tasks, all seem to do playground duty. There can absolutely be no denying the increase incredible value of teaching assistants. Without them, our work would be that much harder, that's for sure. And I did a whole episode on this that you can go back and listen to if you like. This same week in August, we saw a slew of articles demanding that the education ministers, who were meeting around this time, 
fix the nationwide teacher shortages. Again, the media focus on these shortages is of course good awareness raising, but that's about it. One article by The Guardian mentioned how modelling suggests we will be short by thousands of secondary teachers and a similar amount of primary teachers in the coming years. The issue isn't just that teachers are leaving, it's also that less are entering uni to study teaching and those that are entering are not always finishing their degree. The media pushed hard for the government to fix it, just like we've been doing for years and years. The next article that caught my eye was published on a website called Kids News. It was titled, Parents Back Push for Healthy Cafeteria Lunches for South Australian School Kids. It detailed how a group of researchers were lobbying for schools in South Australia to pilot a universal lunch program, similar to what we see in other countries. The draw cards, according to the researchers, came in multiple parts. More nutritious food served, help with disadvantaged students, and as a learning opportunity about nutrition and social functions of eating the same meals as a large group. While reading, though, all I could think about was how picky a lot of young eaters are, including my own two-year-old, and also how diverse the lunchboxes I see are. Yes, of course, there are those who could do with a piece of fruit or vegetable, and I'm definitely not trying to shame any parents here. The other angle is that having worked at some very multicultural schools, you run the risk of these young people losing that connection to their culture through removing their lunchboxes. I see a lot of cultural foods, and oftentimes they are a topic of conversation amongst the students, which I think is a fantastic way for them to share their cultures with each other. Overall, it's certainly an intriguing idea, and it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. August 19 saw a very worrying headline from Seven News. Home Affairs Minister warns children are being radicalised in school playgrounds. Australia's National Security Agency has revealed extremists are targeting the vulnerable and shy. Now, you may remember me touching on in the last episode about how Pauline Hanson thinks that schools are radicalising students with regard to things like climate change. We're not talking about this here. We're talking about true radicalization. And I think when you compare the two, the fact that Pauline Hanson is coming out saying this is actually quite offensive. At first, you might be thinking quite cynically about this topic, and to be honest, so was I when I first read that headline. So let me read you some snippets, and remember that this is actually coming from Home Affairs and ASIO. This is not coming from sources of gossip. The federal government says sickening propaganda is being used in Australian schoolyards to tempt kids as young as 13 into becoming homegrown terrorists. National Securist National Security Agency, the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, or ASIO, claims extremists are targeting the vulnerable. They'll do this through the use of videos that might start out being a bit humorous and grow more and more racist and more and more violent until young people are quite desensitised to the violence they are seeing, Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill told Seven News. The children most at risk are usually those who are being bullied at school, who might be seeking out friendship groups but are not able to find them, and young people who don't have those protective factors or family or community. We need to be seeking out those children and ensure they have adults that they can trust and turn to, she added. For operational reasons, the schools or locations of these cases could not be disclosed. 
the fact that they put that in the article is quite worrying to me because that's telling me that, you know, ASIO is tracking kids because these kids are being radicalized. I'll read that again. It said, for operational reasons, the schools or locations of these cases could not be disclosed. The risk is, is that it first radicalizes kids, but then it also primes them into copycat action, psychiatrist Dr. Tanvir Ahmed said. In February, ASIO chief Mike Burgess flagged that minors now represented around 15% of new counterterrorism investigations and that their extremism was more intense. Children as young as 13 are now embracing extremism, and this is happening with religiously motivated violent extremism and ideologically motivated violence extremism, he said. And unlike past experience, many of these young people do not come from families where a parent or a sibling already holds extreme views. He said sports clubs, schools, parents, carers, and community leaders could play a pivotal role in identifying signs in teenagers heading towards radicalization. The acceleration of radicalization, online propaganda, and misinformation, single issue extremism, and minors embracing violent extremism all require a whole of government, whole of system, and whole of nation approach. So this is something worth keeping in mind as you head into the new year. When I taught in London, part of our beginning of year training sessions, one of those actually was on extreme radicalization of teenagers. So it would be interesting to see if we end up getting a similar sort of training program here for us teachers. I'm going to switch to something a little bit more positive. The University of Southern Australia published this one on August 25. Teachers want support to embrace nature play in primary education. The article begins. From tree branch teepees to bush tucker gardens, mud kitchens, and even functional fire pits, primary schools are all sprouting all sorts of nature play environments in an effort to better connect primary students with the outdoors. But while nature play infrastructure grows, new research from the University of South Australia shows that teachers also need a knowledge boost on how to best link nature play areas to the curriculum and children's learning. Conducted in partnership with Nature Play South Australia, the Australian first study found that while all teachers believe that nature-based play and learning can deliver huge benefits for children, seven out of 10 teachers felt that their knowledge and confidence was limiting their ability to fully embrace those opportunities at school. I myself, again, did some amazing outdoor PD while I was teaching in London, and it really did inspire me to give it a go. But coming back to Oz, I haven't done it much since, mostly because I'm concerned about behavior, but also because I haven't made the time to sit and plan it out to my own satisfaction before giving it a go. If you do outdoor learning with your students, I would love to hear from you. Let me know through social media or the website, please. And now we're going to round out August with this headline from ABC News on August 28. Three period products to be rolled out across WA's public secondary schools. Here's a little snippet before we move on to September. Free pads and tampons will be offered to WA public school students in years 7 to 12 to ensure girls are not skipping class because they cannot afford sanitary products. WA is the last state in Australia to offer free period products in schools, with the program set to roll out in the first term of next year. 
So look forward to that. And here we are in September. I would play you that little snippet of the September song, except that then my whole podcast would get taken down. But the very first day of September, do you remember? Oh, what is that song? Excuse me while I go and find it. September. Do you remember the 21st night of September? Anyway, the very first day of September started off with this headline by the ABC. Public service wage freeze sparks strike action from NT teachers and prison officers, supported by nurses and firefighters. The article reads, Teachers are leading strikes over a public service wage freeze in the Northern Territory, arguing wages must remain above those offered interstate to keep, or get, its classrooms staffed. Full-day strikes took place in, in Darwin and Alice Springs, as well as regional and remote communities on Thursday, after the Australian Education Union NT branch rejected a new deal offered by the government late on Tuesday. Wages for all public servants in the NT are frozen for four years at 2021 levels under budget repair policies implemented by the government. Hmm. While all these strikes focused on pay as one of the core issues, I think it's important to note that that's not the only thing keeping teachers out of the profession in one way or another. This article, also by the ABC on September 5, explores that. For this teacher weighing up a return to the classroom, there are bigger issues than pay. Paige Rundle is on a long service leave from the profession she loves, but admits it's unlikely she will return to teaching full time. Ms Rundle is one of thousands of registered Australian teachers opting not to step back into the classroom as the teacher shortage worsens. But she says it's not a question of pay. The money's not that bad. It's that they've taken teaching out of our hands, she said. They've got to give teachers the freedom to actually teach. Ms Rundle is studying publishing and weighing up a career change, but admits that teaching will always be in her blood. I've started teaching horse riding because it scratches the itch, but it's sad because the same joy isn't there in the classroom anymore, and it should be, she said. This article, of course, mirrors previous conversations held in the media and those that are held in our staff rooms all the time, and it's such a multifaceted thing. And of course, it's not just school teachers who face these issues. The very next day, The Guardian headlined, more than 1,000 Australian childcare centres to strike for better paying conditions. Early childhood education workers will walk off the job on Wednesday, with rallies to be held in every capital city and some regional centres. It absolutely cannot be denied that early childhood educators have a far worse deal than us teachers. I remember when I was in uni and I worked at Boost Juice, I was earning more per hour than daycare workers. You know, those people who care for and raise our youngest members of society. Taking a quick step back to September 2nd, I was pleased to see this headline in the Sydney Morning Herald. A caution on consent and sex education. In our rush to do better, don't cause harm. This message perfectly mirrors the conversations I had with Maria Delaney earlier this year. She has spent a very long time in the space of domestic violence and surrounding areas education, 
And her biggest concern with the rollout of the national consent education is that it would come in a very cookie cutter shape. Maria cautioned how programs really need to be contextualized to the individual communities and that they need to be approached extremely delicately and with whole community buy-in. We run the risk of causing great distress and confusion, especially amongst students who may be experiencing these things at home. You know that feeling of don't get involved, you might make it worse for them when you see something happening? That rings very true here. The whole process should proceed with great care and caution and appropriate training for every single adult involved. September 9 saw The Educator Online published this article. South Australia to provide autism teachers in every primary school by 2023. The article reads, Instead of sorting out people on the spectrum to special schools, the South Australian government will place a specialist autism teacher in every government primary school in the state by 2023. The $28.8 million program came to fruition after the appointment of Emily Burke as Australia's first autism minister in late August. Her entrance to the state cabinet follows after new research from the University of South Australia showed that parents lack awareness on the specific learning needs of autistic children. Each school will receive guidelines this week on how to choose an autism inclusion teacher by November. So this should have already happened at your school if you are in South Australia. Once selected, they will undergo more training to grow each school's capacity to work with children with autism in time for when Term 1 starts. This is such a pleasing and interesting development to me. So many people are unaware of the intricacies of the autism spectrum and the needs of students living in that space. Having a really well-trained teacher person in each school to guide practice, it just sounds wonderful. As I mentioned in my episode about Shelley Moore's work, a lot of support systems that could be in place for these students will be hugely beneficial to other students as well. The article backs this up by ending with, Last month, South Australia Premier said South Australia aspires to be a national leader when it comes to serving the neurodiverse community. South Australia is leading the way in inclusive education, Education Minister Blair Boyer said. We know that there is a huge benefit for students, families, the community and South Australia more broadly by improving the support we put around autistic students. Do you remember the 21st night of September? Mm, Stuck in my head. The Educator Online published this one on September 23. Expert panel to revamp initial teacher education. The federal government has announced the creation of an expert panel to review how initial teacher education is taught at universities across Australia. The announcement follows high-level discussions aimed at tackling the most pressing issues facing Australian education. Namely, schools struggling to retain teachers and meet urgent resourcing needs in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. In August, the first face-to-face meeting of federal and state education ministers in more than a year concluded with an agreement to create a National Action Plan by December to address the growing teacher shortage in Australia's schools. 
Something I do want to note is that the panel doesn't seem to include any practicing classroom teachers, which is a really big oversight in my eyes. We teachers seem to be told what to do exclusively by people who are no longer in the classroom, which means that they don't actually understand the current intricacies of the day-to-day job. Remember the story we've touched on a couple of times about the high school student who stabbed her teacher? Well, WA Today finally reported that she has been sentenced to three years in jail. So finally, a bit of justice on that story, and that is the end of that one. In a bit of a showcase of an accidental PR move, this headline came from news.com.au on September 26. Tasmanian school's meteorite landing simulation sends thousands into panic. A meteor landing, quote unquote, at an Australian school has sent thousands into a panic, forcing emergency services to make an important clarification. A Tasmanian school community sent thousands into panic after photos of a meteor landing in the playground were posted online and shared around the world. Images of suited-up scientists examining what looked like a rock from space that had torn up the bitumen of Corpus Christi Catholic School in Lauderdale near Hobart led some to believe that it was a real meteor strike. The story was picked up by a local radio station and pictures of the event reached as far as Sri Lanka. However, the unbelievable event was far less extraterrestrial and more educational as it was part of the school's Meteorite Discovery Day put on for students. We're trying to foster inquiry-based learning for the students, and we figured a great way to do that was to do something pretty wild, Deputy Principal Ben Morgan told NCA Newswire. Using an excavator and a boulder that looked particularly out of this world, local company Mansfield Builders created the realistic meteor landing. Both Tasmanian police and the local fire brigade were forced to put out statements declaring the scene to be false after initial photos created a stir. Talk about going accidentally viral. What a fun thing to happen. And so now we move into October. And to be honest, a lot of the reporting is getting more and more repetitive. Teacher shortages, school funding, how to fix the education system. This article in The Guardian on October 7 raised a few eyebrows. King's School in Sydney under investigation over use of taxpayer money. Elite private school reportedly planned to install plunge pool at head teacher's house. The school says it takes its obligations seriously and is cooperating with the department. An elite private school that charges $25,000 a year to educate seven-year-olds is under investigation over its use of taxpayer funds. The King's School in Sydney reportedly planned to install a plunge pool at the head teacher's residence and sent the school's senior staff to attend a British rowing event. These reports have sparked a New South Wales Department of Education inquiry into the 191-year-old independent school's use of public funding. The expectation of any non-government school receiving public funding is very clear. The funding must be for the education of its students. The Education Minister Sarah Mitchell said in a statement on Friday. I guess this once again raises the issue of the amount of public funding that private schools receive. October 13 brought us this headline from the conversation. 
If Australia wants to improve school outcomes, we need to define what equity really means. I think a lot of us would agree that it means fair funding to avoid situations like that last story, but the authors go deeper than this. If Australia is serious about improving its education system, we need to look at improving the whole system for all students. This means we need a clear definition of what equity means for schools. Our submission to the Productivity Commission School Agreement Inquiry process proposes a clear definition of educational equity. We argue equity has two dimensions, individual and social. That is, equity should involve a minimum level educational attainment for all students and a similar education outcome for different social groups. An individual dimension of equity in education means that all children receive an education that enables them to fully participate in adult society in a way of their choosing. Of course, we are far from this outcome. The article didn't provide any actionable solutions, but it was very thought-provoking nonetheless. The next day saw this heartbreaking headline from the BBC. Australia floods. Three states issue evacuation orders after heavy rain. This article followed, was followed by this one in The Guardian on October 16. More than 100 schools to be closed on Monday amid Victorian flood crisis. That's right, after what we endured at the beginning of the year, we were now about to go through it again. The impact was just as devastating as the previous floods, perhaps more so as the trauma was so fresh and far too many people hadn't even begun to recover. October 16 also saw this headline in Financial Review. End the lesson lottery in Australia's schools, giving teachers practical guidance and the time-saving teaching plans they want will reduce variability of what is taught in the nation's classrooms. I'm sure most of you will agree this is exactly not what we want. What we want is to have the time and freedom to creatively craft our lessons to best suit the students we have in front of us at the time. We all know how disastrous prescriptive lesson plans can be and that often our best teaching moments happen because of tangent or stray questions. The article is very well-intentioned, outlining the amount of time teachers spend planning and sourcing lessons, as well as the call for high-quality, readily accessible resources for teachers to use if they please. But, I mean, we've tried that with C2C. It has been done. Here is a snippet from the article. All schools and all teachers should have ready access to high-quality, comprehensive curriculum materials that they can adapt and use if they choose. These materials should be well-sequenced and detailed, covering the lesson plans, teaching materials, workbooks, and assessments needed to teach each subject. These materials should be quality assured by a new independent review body, so teachers can be confident the materials are road-tested and ready for the classroom. You and I know that this is a fantastic idea in theory, less so in practice. What works in my classroom may very well not work at all in yours, and it would leave very little room, or just as much work as before, for contextualization, particularly for rural and remote schools. That article was followed by a few others with titles similar to this one by the ABC. 
Teachers drowning in near impossible amount of lesson planning, forcing them to rely on sites like YouTube report finds. It reads, Damning new Grattan Institute research shows a lack of curriculum detail and inadequate support is leaving many teachers drowning in a near impossible amount of lesson planning. It found less than a fifth of teachers have access to a common bank of pre-prepared high-quality curriculum materials for all their classes. The research said the gap created a disjointed lesson lottery where teaching quality varied from teacher to teacher and school to school depending on the level of planning support. The current challenges are not due to a lack of effort on the part of the teachers. Too often they are left to do their best in near impossible circumstances, the report said. It suggests governments work with schools to develop high-quality, sequenced curriculum documents teachers can then adapt for their classes, a practice that is not widespread. Grattan Institute senior associate Amy Haywood, who co-wrote the report, said successive governments had left teachers to flounder without support. She said governments had radically underestimated the amount of work and the challenge of taking high-level, very broad documents such as the Australian curriculum or state-level curriculum and translating that into teaching and learning in the class. The research found a high school teacher responsible for four different classes would need 2,000 hours or a year working full-time to adequately plan their lessons from scratch. If they do it within their working hours during term, they'd never have stepped foot inside a classroom, she said. Ms. Haywood said that often meant teachers were scrambling for resources on unvetted sites like YouTube and teacher resource sharing hubs. Thankfully, the ABC article was pretty forgiving of teachers, but some of the other reports out at this time about this topic weren't. They were strongly suggesting that teachers were using YouTube because they were lazy. I think this kind of paints the wrong picture, at least in my own experience. I love using sites like YouTube, but I do so not as a time-saving resource or a replacement for me teaching resource but more as a supplementary and complementary learning tool. I talked about this with Adam Voigt in my episode with him. Having someone else to explain a topic can really help students gain a deeper understanding and videos can provide a far richer learning experiences in some cases than I can. For example, I obviously can't take students to watch an erupting volcano and the subsequent lava flow, but we can watch a scientist explore this phenomenon on YouTube. I get what they mean when they say it's unvetted. Searching for a video that's just a couple of minutes long can actually take hours to get just the right one. But again, the video that's best for my class might not be best for yours, and you may choose something completely different. All classroom teachers know this, and we operate under this knowledge. And I think the bigger issue here is not that we don't have quality resources available. It's that we have less and less time to be able to find, use, adapt, and create them. The next series of articles addressed a deeply concerning trend. The ABC led with this headline. African-Australian students are subject to the N-word and racism in the classroom, according to report. The report in question asked nearly 100 African-Australian students about their experiences. Their report, released on Wednesday, shows 87% of respondents 
felt they had been discriminated against in school. 91% of respondents said they had seen students being subjected to racism in school. When it came to who was perpetrating the racism, 80% of respondents said that other students were responsible. 67% said teachers were responsible and 21% noted principals had been racist. The articles called for more and better anti-racism training and education in schools, but I wonder if it will ever be enough. To be truly anti-racist requires very deep self-reflection and constant work. And I don't think our schools are equipped, at least not at the moment, to effectively do this work. October 24 brought this incredibly shocking headline, something none of us saw coming in the Western Australian, in the West Australian. Alarming Australia-wide study find teachers don't feel respected or safe at work and few plan to stay. I mean, by this point, we've had almost a full year of similar articles. Here's the snippet. Teachers are planning to leave the profession in droves as their sense of satisfaction slumps, while an alarming number do not feel safe at work, a major national study has concluded. Monash University education experts surveyed more than 5,000 teachers nationwide, finding 70% did not feel respected by the Australian public. That conflicts with the 2019 survey suggesting high levels of respect for teachers in the community and a follow-up survey in 2020 that found appreciation for teachers rose as they responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. The current disconnect highlights a gap between what we think and how we behave, the 2022 report's lead author Fiona Longmuir said. Notably, the group that teachers felt the most respect from were students, with almost 51% agreeing or strongly agreeing with that proposition. For parents, it was just 33.3%. Parents were mentioned in almost half of the 38,000 comments provided, described by teachers as abusive, unsupportive, unrealistic, and demanding. Worryingly, one quarter of teachers reported feeling unsafe on the job. Also alarmingly was work satisfaction plunging from 65.9% to 45.8% between the university's 2019 and 2022 surveys, with only 30% now planning to remain in the vacation despite 80% having a strong sense of belonging to it. So there you have it, more data about what we already know. I wonder who will use this data and, and in what way? Or will it sit forever stagnant in the articles like this one? Finally, toward the end of October, we have a truly lovely headline by the ABC. NT teacher crowned National Slam Poetry Champion after performance about education system. Maybe not lovely because of the topic being about constraints of the education system, but lovely to see Joanna Yang's new passion in slam poetry recognised at the national level. Well done. We then saw a slew of articles about the national budget. I've decided I'm not going to address these articles because it would be a series in its own right to dissect the budget and the media reporting on it. But if you are super keen for me to cover it, let me know and I can do that early in the new year. And so we move into November. 
Surprise, we're in November and the same topics keep cycling back through the media. Save your interest, I've filtered out a whole lot more again. The first article for November is yet another contentious issue. We've certainly had a lot of them throughout the year. This one was published by the ABC on November 2 with the headline, Mobile Phones to be Banned in Northern Territory Government School Classrooms from 2023. The article reads, Mobile phones will be banned across the Northern Territory government schools in a move intended to curb classroom distractions, bullying, and mental health issues among young people. The ban, which follows other statewide policies around Australia, will take place from Term 1 of 2023. Secondary school students will be required to turn the devices off and put them away during school hours. They will be banned altogether at primary schools. I firmly believe that by banning mobile phones, we'll see our students, our young people, engaging socially more, having those interactions at recess and lunchtime instead of spending their whole time on their phone, Education Minister Eve Lawler said. For our teachers, it provides them more time to teach the classroom rather than worrying about the disruptions caused by mobile phones. Exceptions to the rule may be allowed for research or medical purposes. Love to hear your thoughts on this one. Mine are very mixed. They can provide a great educational tool, especially in high school science, for example. But of course, they also can be a huge distraction and a tool for bullying. Please do reach out and let me know what your school does and what your thoughts on this topic are. This next article headline might make you chuckle, though. Published by the ABC on November 3, the headline reads, Albany's government to launch multi-million dollar PR campaign to bring respect back to teaching. Woohoo! Thanks, guys. Here are some snippets from the article. The federal government will trial new ways to reduce teacher workload and launch a multi-million dollar PR campaign as part of its draft plan to address teacher shortages. Just going to interrupt the article here for a random thought that just flew into my head. I feel like they need to get some celebrity PR people onto this if they want to do it right. They need to take it from the perspective of a PR crisis and from the perspective of a PR crisis that has involved celebrities. Because those people, those PR people are working to protect a brand, a personal brand in the form of the celebrities. And I feel like if we want to do this right, thinking of teaching as a personal brand rather than as a corporation or an industry might actually work better, especially when it comes down to things like the media. If we have some people in PR that are working with really high profile topics and people, that's going to be far more beneficial than your run-of-the-mill PR firm that might work with corporations, for example. Anyway, back to the article. The draft national plan follows months of roundtable discussions and is being released for stakeholder feedback before the final policy is agreed on in December. It is a response to escalating education work shortages, with the federal government predicting that if nothing changes, there will be around 4,000 fewer teachers than required by 2025. That number is actually a lot lower than the other reports I'd seen. Ahead of Thursday's announcement, 
Education Minister Jason Clare said $25 million would be spent trialling ways to reduce teacher workload and to maximise the time teachers actually spend teaching. This fund is available to work with state governments and territory governments to test and try new things, he said. He said solutions like increased teacher aid support, employing parents to do administrative work, as well as improved curriculum planning support were all on the table. He also flagged funding for a $10 million campaign to raise the profile of teaching, a recommendation put forward by a recent government-funded review. The respect that the profession gets today isn't what it used to get, he said. Too many people overlook teaching as a profession when they're sitting their final exams at high school, thinking about what they want to do after school. Uh, it's amusing to me that the very body who chooses to underfund the profession and have many members on record making outright insulting comments about it is now complaining about the lack of respect for it. I wonder if this plan will include a push on the media to stop teacher bashing style articles. November 7 brought this worrying headline from Nine News. Teachers most at risk of assault, research shows. Teachers are at a far greater risk of being injured in an assault or suffering a mental health condition than any other profession, according to new research. Educators were compared to the broader workforce in an analysis by Monash University of workers' compensation claims from more than 1.5 million Australians over six years. The research found teachers may be underreporting their injuries, while the state with the highest number of claims was New South Wales. This links back to my own articles from years ago. One about stories of violence teachers had endured and another about the research around violence against teachers. I mentioned them earlier. Since I wrote those articles, these topics have steadily increased in interest. That is pleasing, but it's also worrying. A bit more from the article. In contrast to the rest of the findings, the overall claim rate for teachers was far lower than the rest of the workforce leading researchers to believe there is a culture in the profession of not reporting injuries. Rather than go through the rigmarole of lodging a claim, taking time off, finding a substitute, building a lesson plan, you just say, I'll bear with it until the school holidays, Lane said. I know from my own articles and conversations in and out of staff rooms that this is absolutely the case. Teachers are even often encouraged by their leadership team to not report citing a variety of excuses, sorry, reasons. On November 9, the conversation had an article with a very interesting topic. Once students knew their identity, they excelled. How to talk about excellence in Indigenous education. Here's a bit from the article. When we talk about Indigenous education in Australia, it almost always includes three words. Close the gap. The federal government's Indigenous education priorities highlight school attendance, literacy and numeracy, and Year 12 attainment. This frames students and their families as a problem to fix. In other areas of education, the word excellence is frequently used to frame policy. But a simple Google search of excellence and Indigenous education comes up with very few meaningful results. Why aren't we starting from the same point in Indigenous education? 
That made me stop and think about my own experiences with Indigenous education, and it certainly has always been from the lens of closing the gap. The article discussed how the researchers had yarned with 31 Indigenous and non-Indigenous educators, principals, and teachers about their perspectives on on excellence in Indigenous education. They explored the question, how is excellence in Indigenous education defined by Indigenous people? Three themes emerged, the young person, school culture, and relationships. The most distinct theme to emerge was the need to nurture and affirm culture and identity in students and in do so build young people up. Indigenous interviewees talked about identity as a protective factor in the face of navigating issues such as racism at school. In terms of school culture, the article read, Research already tells us the leadership of a school plays a critical role in its culture. Our research also shows it is vital for excellence in Indigenous education. Then on to relationships. Previous research also recognises how positive relationships with students are connected to positive outcomes for students. In all our conversations with educators and support staff in school, one thing stood out. When asked to think about excellence in Indigenous education, Many of these experts struggled to conceptualise what it is or should be. We believe this is due to the dominance of closing the gap. Those three words have been so influential in shaping the minds of educators and support staff in schools. This highlights the power and importance of language. We need new ways to speak aspirationally about Indigenous education and move on from the old deficit vocabulary. I think it's definitely worth a bit of soul searching within yourself and how you personally frame Indigenous education. Is there a way you can shift your own perspective to be more aspirational for the students you teach? November 21 brought us this awful headline from the BBC. Sydney school students injured after science experiment goes wrong. At least 11 students at a primary school in the Australian city of Sydney have been injured after a classroom science experiment went wrong. Reports say at least two students were taken via ambulance to hospital with serious burns. Nine others are believed to have suffered superficial burns. An experiment involving sodium bicarbonate and methylated spirits was reportedly affected by a gust of wind. I work as an advisor with Science Assist, which is Australia's only national school science advisory service. So, of course, we had to sort of issue some statements about this, along with the Australian Science Teachers Association. And when we heard about this horrific incident, a lot of the attention in the media was turned towards safety and experiments, teacher responsibility, etc. Some were even calling for a ban on experiments like this. But the reality is that science experiments provide a wonderfully unique and sometimes necessary learning experience. Appropriate risk mitigation needs to occur, of course, but also, of course, random chance accidents do happen. Overall, this was a horrific incident and I hope everyone has recovered okay. Jumping topics, seven news headlined. Queensland teachers to sign enterprise agreement giving them the right to completely switch off after work. 
The digital detox outlined in a three-year enterprise agreement is aimed at improving teachers' work-life balance. You know, it's a bit ludicrous to me that this has to be written into our enterprise bargaining agreement. Can't we just stop working when we stop working? I know a lot face pushback from parents in particular who themselves may only be able to respond to school correspondence in the evenings, but our workday is our workday and if we choose not to extend that into the evening, that should be our right without having to have it written into our EB. And with that, we are already in December. Woohoo! Welcome to the current time. I finished researching for this podcast on December 21 and recorded on December 23rd, so anything published after the 21st won't be included. And I have to tell you, it's been literal days and days, like full days of work, researching and considering and writing for these two episodes. Anyway, I'm going to start December with a disclaimer that I won't be talking about the shooting incident. Yes, I know those involved were ex-teachers and principals, but out of respect to the victims and the ongoing investigations, I won't be talking about it, which incidentally removes a whole lot of potential content. So December is going to be quite short. Actually, looking at the script, maybe not as short as I was thinking. So let's start with this headline from the conversation on December the 2nd. A push to raise the school's starting age to six sounds like good news for parents, but there's a catch. This article discussed how a New South Wales proposal suggested that all children should start school in the year they turn six. This is, of course, quite different to what happens around Australia as each state has its own cutoff dates throughout the year. The purpose of the article wasn't the comparison of states, though. It was to raise awareness that making the starting age later than it currently is could actually be very disadvantageous for families who were already disadvantaged. The article discussed how those children from more advantaged families tended to start school with a year delay, particularly young boys. Those coming from more disadvantaged families tended to not have this delayed start and part of that, at least, can be attributed to the cost of daycare. Where there is not a subsidised form of last year of daycare setting before hitting big school setting, families can be forced to overlook their need or desire to delay school start. The article then outlined the importance of quality early childhood education that retains a focus on true play-based learning rather than school readiness skills. It ended with this. So school at six is a good idea, but it needs to be supported by free, high-quality, play-based early childhood education that is available to all children. And this will require significant investment from governments. Speaking of government investment, The Conversation published this article on December 5. Australian private high school enrolments have jumped 70% since 2012. An increasing number of Australian children are going to private high schools, new research shows. The latest Household Income and Labour Dynamics in Australia annual statistics report has found an increasing number of students going to public schools over non-government schools for the primary years. But once students get to high school, the trend is significantly reversed. 
The article outlines statistics drawn from the study, showing a clear increase in the number of students enrolled in private schools for their high school years. I'm going to read you another chunk from the article because it's so interesting both as a public school teacher and as a parent. While there are many options for schools in Australia, where you live and your financial resources will affect what is available to you. So why do many families pay for private schools, particularly high school? High marks and successful university entrance results are obvious reasons. However, research in Australia and worldwide shows the exam scores of children who attend private schools are no different to those in public schools after accounting for socioeconomic background. That is, the academic achievement of expensive private schools might say more about the families and their income and education levels who send their children to those schools, rather than anything particularly unique about the school's teaching and learning. So what are the reasons for this increase? While our 2020 study did not specifically ask parents about their school choices, we did ask them about the levels of satisfaction with their children's school experience and other various education outcomes. We found parents of students who attended private schools, both at primary and high school levels, self-rated the quality of education higher than Catholic or public school parents. They were also more likely to declare their children's overall achievement as excellent or above average. Meanwhile, 71.9% of private school parents expected their children to go to university, compared to 67% of Catholic school parents and 47.8% of government school parents. This suggests parents are sending their children to private schools because they think it will get them a better education. Results from the HILDA survey seem to indicate parents may have different motivations around school choice for the primary and secondary years. For primary school, parents may want to send their children to a local, free public school because they are understandably not as focused on exam results and career prospects. But for high school, they may think the extra financial investment is worth it and want a certain type of culture or value system for their teenagers to grow up and study in. Their ideas about academic excellence, citizenship, and friendship networks may become more important to try and ensure their children's desired success in life. But given access to free, good quality education is a fundamental right in Australia, these figures are a concern. Parents should not have to pay to get what they believe is a better education. Any family, regardless of their income or where they live, should be able to access quality education for their children. Isn't it interesting how perception is the biggest driver here, aside from, of course, financial ability? Parents think private schools are far better than public, so that's that, even when the research shows there's no tangible difference in academic outcome. I know for myself as a parent, school facilities play a big role in decision-making. If I had the option between two schools who both feel equal, I'm going to be going for the one with the shinier, newer, more expansive resources, which we know damn well private schools have because of their insane funding. The Sydney Morning Herald ran with this headline in December, which I couldn't really see mirrored anywhere else. Call to bring back one-year diploma to ease teacher shortage. 
I admit I do find it amusing that this is a contentious issue, given that that's exactly what I did to get into my teaching career. I had completed a Bachelor of Science and then a Master's of Science Communication before deciding that education was where my real passion lie. So at the time, that meant doing a one-year graduate diploma, and off I went. Does that mean I was less prepared than others? I have no idea. But I do know that my pracs were seven and eight-week long blocks, which is possibly the longest I've come across. I really feel those lengthy blocks were super beneficial to my learning of the profession, mostly because I was able to track and teach pretty much an entire unit during that time. I personally don't see a problem with this diploma, one-year diploma making a comeback, especially in the interim. Circling back once again to funding, The Guardian ran an article titled Labor's delay on public school funding deal a betrayal of disadvantaged students, advocates say. You'll remember me touching on this earlier a couple of times about the government's plan to fully and fairly fund private schools. Well, Australia's Education Minister Jason Clare says government is still committed to schools getting 100% of fair funding. The Albanese government has been accused of betraying public schools after delaying a new funding agreement by one year. On Friday, the Council of Education Ministers decided to extend the deal until December 2024, meaning governments will not have to increase public school funding beyond existing commitments until 2025. The Federal Education Minister, Jason Clare, defended the delay as necessary to conduct a review to ensure funding is directed to the neediest students. But the Australian Education Union has warned, resources delayed are resources denied. Public schools receive 20% of the schooling resource standard from the federal government and up to 75% from the states. But due to a loophole for capital depreciation, they are set to remain at 91% of full funding for the rest of the decade. Before the 2022 election, Labor committed only to develop a pathway to full funding, sparking concern from the AEU that the timeline for improvement was vague. You may remember me mentioning that before. Kobold said public schools on average receive just 87.1% of the schooling resource standard and the current timeline was costing them $6 billion a year in funding. The AEU's president, Corinna Haythorpe, said the one-year extension delays and therefore denies students in public schools the funding they need. There has now been a generation of children who have been denied full and fair funding for their entire school lives. This can no longer continue. Haythorpe said the review should confirm governments must ensure public schools are funded to a minimum of 100% of the standard from 2024. Green's school spokesperson, Senator Penny Allman-Payne, said the delay was outrageous and would see public school kids wait another year for a fair go while continuing to pour public money into elite private schools. This decision will also heap further strain on under-resourced teachers and schools and will worsen crippling teacher shortages. By now, I'm sure you have an idea of my thoughts and feelings on all of this funding issue. 
And finally, I'm going to end with this one article from The Conversation on December 20, wrapping up a well-flogged media frenzy topic. Australia has a plan to fix its teacher shortage. Will it work? I'm going to read you this reminder from the article under a subheading, Remind Me What's in the Plan. The final plan, like the draft, identifies five priority areas to attract and retain high-quality teachers to the profession. Number one, improving teacher supply. Number two, strengthening teaching degrees. Number three, keeping the teachers we have. Number four, elevating the profession. And number five, better understanding of future teacher workforce needs. There were more than 650 submissions to the draft. Initially, there were 28 recommendations or actions, but the final version has 27. After one initial idea, a Teacher of the Year award was scrapped based on teacher feedback. The final plan still includes measures such as a national campaign to raise the status of teachers and $30 million to reduce teachers' workloads. Overall, the article had two views of our national plan to fix things, a charitable view and a cynical one. The plan includes an extensive appendix of more than 200 initiatives already underway across all states and territories and across all three sectors, that's government, Catholic and independent, to address teacher shortages. A charitable view is this plan will complement and build on these increasing the total effort and funds applied. A cynical view is that these initiatives aren't yet having their desired impact, so planning to do even more of them may not be effective either. So it kind of feels like we're right back where we started in January. A whole lot of media hype, a whole lot of political talk, and that's that. But hopefully this review at the end of the year outlines things having actually happened and being actually beneficial to us teachers. And with that, we are done. What an incredible year it has been. I can see three overriding topics that the media has covered throughout 2022. COVID, teacher shortages, and how to fix teacher shortages. I'm sure the COVID topic will wean out over the next year as we move further into the stage of the pandemic of learning to live alongside it. I'm also sure we've only scratched the surface of the teacher shortage and fixing articles. This issue is going to keep getting worse, at least for a while before it can get better. If you've stayed with me for the entirety of these two episodes, well done. It's taken me a good four or five solid days of researching to get this all together. And then recording each episode has taken about two and a half hours per episode to record. I'm breaking the fourth wall a bit, I guess here, but Editing the episodes can take twice as long as it does to record them. So this has been this has been a ride, and I hope you've enjoyed it. If you'd like to see more of this media reporting throughout the year, please let me know. Um, or if there's any other topics that you want to explore, or guests that you want to hear from, or if you yourself would like to come on as a guest, please get in touch via social media or the website. You can find me at Staff Room Stories. I'm now going to take a break. 
So expect the first episode of the new year in early February. There won't be any new content in January. So make sure you're subscribed via your podcast streamer of choice so that you don't miss the new episodes when they come. Also means I'm going to be taking a break on social media as well. So don't expect anything new in the Facebook groups or pages or Instagram. And if you're a long-time listener, please do let your friends know about this podcast too. I really can't thank you enough for your time this year. This whole thing would literally be pointless if you weren't tuning in for each of the new episodes. So thank you, and I hope you enjoy your holiday season. If you'd like to continue the conversation, Come and join us over on Facebook in the group called The Teacher Community by Staff Room Stories. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Staff Room Stories. You can also check out the blog at www.staffroomstories.com for full podcast episode transcripts, as well as articles about a whole range of other staff room topics. If you liked what you heard today, I'd love for you to tell your friends and colleagues about this podcast. And if you would leave me a review on whatever service you're listening through, this helps others to find us. Thank you for gifting me some time out of your day. I hope the rest of it treats you well.